Hello and welcome to today's episode of Hear the Future, the podcast dedicated to gaining inside access to today's brightest minds. Today we're joined by Lawrence Ganti. Lawrence, it's great to have you here. Pleasure to be here, Simon and David. Thanks for having me. Lawrence is the president of SIO2 Material Science, a company focused on three core segments, pharmaceuticals, molecular diagnostics, and consumer healthcare. They hold over 300 patents and are known for their unique glass-like barrier for application onto any plastic surface, so as to increase its durability. Throughout the coronavirus crisis, demand for this material has surged, presenting a novel opportunity for SIO2. Lawrence holds a Bachelor's of Science in Entrepreneurship from Babson College and was previously the CEO of InnoPlexus. So, Lawrence, perhaps we could start, um, you know, you could give us a bit more detail about the various different business lines that SIO2 operates in. Sure. I mean, look, the technology is rather cool. It's something that came out of the semiconductor industry. And um, we spent the last 10 years in research and development perfecting the technology. What it does is it applies a glass-like barrier to any plastic substrates or any plastic container. So it could be uh, in our case, we have uh, pharmaceutical vials, pharmaceutical syringes, blood collection tubes for genetic testing. We even produce baby bottles. So anything that we take a plastic outside container, we can apply a nano layer of glass. So we're talking about 50 times thinner than a human hair. So really, really thin um, glass barrier to the inside of that container. And what does that do? It, it provides effectively a protective barrier to oxygen, to leachables, there's a lot of metal ions and things that come out of glass that have impacts on whether it be your baby's milk, whether it be, um, you know, uh, pharmaceutical drug products. So that technology platform is what we've invented. And we've been able to apply that to a couple of different product lines. So one is the pharmaceutical area. The other is molecular diagnostics, as David mentioned. Um, and then also the consumer area, which is kind of nascent, but we have a number of uh, products that are coming out into the market uh, in the next couple of months specific for, for the consumer side. Interesting. I mean, I, I'd love to know sort of what was the the process? I mean, how did you actually go about creating this material and, and actually building all the infrastructure around that? So it, we had, I would say, 11, 12 years ago, we were approached by Stanford University Medical Center in the United States, um, and in particular, the Children's Hospital. And our founder, Bobby Abrams, um, has been in the plastics industry for, I mean, upwards of 60 years. I mean, the guy, the guy is 86 years old heavily active in the business today. And they approached him and said, look, you know, we're using vials and syringes for some of these medications for these premature babies. And there are glass-like particles that come off that, that are creating interactions. And it allows, it doesn't allow them to treat those babies properly. And they said, we know that you're, you know, you're a technology guy. You've been working in the plastics industry for a number of years. You have a number of patents on all different types of, of, uh, of products. Can you see if you can help us? And that, that's where things started to embark was that he joined up with a, with a number of scientists from MIT, from Caltech, uh, University of California, University of Chicago, and, uh, and, and started working with the former head of research and development of Dow Chemical and put together this concept of how can we create the cleanest um, syringe or vial, right, that doesn't break. I mean, clean, we say, you know, no particles, no oil, nothing. Um, which are commonly used in those products. And they, and they said, let's use this concept called plasma-enhanced chemical vapor deposition. It's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> Basically what it does is it applies, it, it uses plasma vapor uh, deposition to basically apply a glass-like barrier or any kind of barrier to a container. 
And it, this is done commonly in the semiconductor industry for microchips. You know, Intel uses it. A number of other companies have used it. But no one's been able to apply it to a medical product or a medical device because they need 100% coverage. You can't afford to have small pinholes and, and things like that. Um, fast forward 10 years, and they managed to come up with this technology, invested over half a billion dollars in research and development. Um, we now work with a number of the, the leading pharmaceutical companies with their, you know, providing syringes and vials for their products. Um, and then more recently, as related to today, we were actually working with the U.S. government on their COVID response. So we were part of Operation Warp Speed. We, were able, we got a grant of $150 million to scale our operation to go from basically producing 10 million vials a year to 10 million vials a month. So it's a 12-fold increase. Uh, in terms of our tech, of our of our footprint. Wow, I mean, I think the, the the whole topic of scaling during coronavirus is you know absolutely fascinating, and I think that's definitely something that we're going to want to talk a lot more about. Um, I'd love to know, you know, during this during the scaling and the increased demand, where is this material sourced from, and is it sustainably sourced so that you can get you know as much of it as you want, or is there ever going to be a point where SiO two kind of run out? Well, this is the interesting part is one of the reasons why the government approached us was there there is a, a pretty well-known glass shortage of medical glass or shortage of medical glass globally. Uh, and this was already starting to happen pre-pandemic. So glass is, you know, people say, well, how, how is that possible? Because glass is typically made from sand. But there's a very particular type of sand and there's a very particular type of glass that's produced from that type of sand. And there is a shortage. Um, and when there's a shortage, you, you have now going through and doing a 1,000 to 3,000 times increase in the demand for medical glass because of the pandemic and because of the vaccines that are required. You know, this surge was not, it was not possible for normal glass vials to be able to capture that or to be able to sustain that. So the government said to us, hey, your, your technology is completely different. We don't use any of the supply chain that's associated with medical glass. Right. We use a plastic resin, which is easily and readily available and gases. You're talking about gases that are readily available in the environment. So we're able to capture those gases. They're easily purchasable. It's a commodity. And we use our technology to kind of merge and fuse the plastic and the glass together uh, without having any of the drawbacks of either. So from a supply chain perspective, we are almost 100 percent vertically integrated as well. So everything is from the, the, the actual molding of the glass, the actual um, building of the container, the actual applying of the gases, everything in there is, is, uh, is integrated into our organization. And could you talk about how easy it is to shift um, the application of this technology for the different business lines that you have? Um, extremely. So it's a very flexible technology. That was, that's, again, another one of the reasons why you know, I think we're very well set up for the future. In the past, people would, you know, you would produce hundreds of millions of vials at a time on, on, a, on a kind of a conveyor belt type of line. Now, with the, the more biologic personalized medicine, you're doing much smaller runs and you need different containers. You need different sizes. You need to be able to flexible with the customers and say, OK, we need a certain kind of vial for the, this type of medicine. And then the next day you need to switch it to something else. So we're highly flexible. Um, we're nimble. Right. Most of our manufacturing is almost fully automated. We have, as an example, we also we're collecting substantial amounts of data. So on any individual product, take one vial, we're capturing 87 individual data points on that vial. Right. Typically, you, you would collect one or two data points in the entire manufacturing process of vials. Here we're doing it at the individual vial level. So 
you know, in terms of set for the future, right? Um, everything we're doing in terms of the data analytics, in terms of the flexibility of the autom uh, automation, the flexibility of the manufacturing, the scaling, the resourcing, all of that has really been future-proofed. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to zoom in on that point you made about data, because when I pick up a vial and I hold it, the only type of data I can think of is, you know, the capacity of the vial. What type of data points do you capture and how do they get used? So each individual vial is, is 2D barcoded from the point we actually mold the vial. As it goes through the process, we're checking the dimensional consistency, we're checking the weights, uh, we're checking the, the, the how the light goes through it, we're checking actually for contaminants in the vial, we're checking for part particulates, we're checking of availability of oil. Taking that forward, once it's filled, because that 2D barcode is there, the person who's actually putting the drug into the container or the, the, the drug filler, they can also scan that and capture data. Then it can go through all the way through the entire supply chain. So think of it from the point that the vial is manufactured to the point that the injection is given to you, we could capture or facilitate or enable that capturing of data through the entire chain. And so that seems that seems like quite a, quite a hard thing, I guess, to implement. How have you gone about hiring you know, good talent in order to do this? That's been, from the scaling perspective, that's been probably the biggest challenge. I would say, you know, just to give you an idea of the task. So we, in a, in a period of nine months, we grew from 109 employees to 550 employees. We grew from one manufacturing site to four manufacturing sites, right? And when I say four, it's, it's literally, we had one manufacturing site in Auburn, Alabama, and then we greenfielded three more manufacturing sites. The glass guys or anyone else to, to build a new manufacturing site typically takes two years, right? And we, we, you know, we had, I can, if I look at it, I had pictures of, of the ground that looked like a football pitch, right? And you're basically plowing that football pitch down, putting up the infrastructure, building the factory, putting the machines in, putting the clean rooms in, you know, constructing all this all during the pandemic, which, uh, you know, in hindsight, think, you know, I, I think we were kind of crazy to think that we could actually do that, but we, we somehow managed to do it. The talent piece is always going to be a challenge. It's difficult to get good people who fit the company culture, who fit the, the mission and the tasks to get, that you want in normal times, right? Um, in the pandemic, it was, you know, a lot of the interviews were done offsite. A lot of them were done through Zoom. Right or through through you know um, you know teleconferencing, video conferencing, and you know that becomes a challenge because we we knew we had to overhire because you just don't you don't know. So if we needed 500 people, we probably hired about 650, almost close to 700 people, and there was a, there was a good amount of turnover. Uh, people didn't know what they were getting into. People uh, didn't like you know the 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 work. The they or people unfortunately had to leave because they had illnesses in the family. Um, we had people who, you know, caught COVID, so they couldn't show up to work. We had to shut down lines. We had to shut down. We had to shut down the plants, you know, portions of the plant because of COVID outbreaks. So all of that we had to manage during this period of time. So it was it was challenging. Yeah, I mean that's super impressive numbers that you mentioned about scaling, and hats off to you guys for doing that. Uh, I'd love to know, you know, do you produce these vials for global manufacturing, or do they mainly get used throughout the U.S.? No, they're for global. I mean, so you'll, I mean, whoever, most of the pharmaceutical companies are global in nature. So when they, when they source uh, materials for their supply chain, they're usually not support sourcing country by country. They usually say, okay, we might have something for the U.S. market, something for the South American market, something for, for Asia, something for Europe. But generally, um, when they have to file their regulatory file for the drug, the drug is filed inside of the container. 
so they need to use typically one or two of the same container for the, for their entire uh, global footprint. Yeah, because you know if you're supplying multiple different areas, different regions with their different regulations, how do you coordinate the factories to cater um, to those requirements? Has that been a big challenge? No, actually. So luckily for the the pharmaceutical industry is highly regulated. Um, there's a lot of uniformity and conformity. So what needs to change country by country is usually just the documentation. Right. And usually if you have information and the data. So we're very data driven. So when we do, you know, they have to test. We can't just say the vial works. We have to show a significant amount of information data about the vial. We have to show the data about the drug inside the vial. So before someone can even send the vial out, um, they typically have to put the vial, the, the drug into the container for anywhere between nine and 12 months and run a battery of tests, collect the data of those tests and use that as part of their regulatory filing when the drug is approved. So, you know, any, any of our vials or syringes that end up on the market, they've gone through rigorous testing, not only by us, but of the drug manufacturer, the drug regulator of the, of the government, whether it be, you know, EMEA in, in Europe, whether it be FDA in the US or MHLW in, in Japan. I mean, all of all of the regulators are going through that, their, their review process. Interesting. So one thing I'm curious about, so, you know, we mentioned earlier in the introduction that you had a, a bachelor's degree in entrepreneurship from Babson. How much of perhaps, maybe, maybe, maybe you were taught this, maybe you weren't, but the lessons in scaling that you learned in academia, you know, how, how, how applicable were they to, to the last year or so? Um, I wouldn't say, so it's interesting. I think what, what has helped me the most in terms of scaling was mindset. And I would say that the mindset foundation was, was given to me or helped to, to be built at Babson. Right. But I wouldn't say that there were particular classes that um, that helped me along. Right. I, I ended up doing also an MBA at IMD in, in, in Switzerland. Um, I would say the largest education I've had that has helped me here was was, uh, you know, I've lived on four different continents. I've worked in a number of countries, everything from from Europe. So Switzerland, France, Italy, um, Japan, India, Brazil, Colombia. So I've had a chance to literally travel the world and work in countries. And being able to adapt to those markets and honestly being exposed, everything from different cultures to food for the way you actually cross the street in the morning, mm. all of that, you know, helps you kind of shape your mindset. So it was more a mindset that that helped us to pivot and to to drive the scale rather than any specific educational, you know, academic component. Mm. And you mentioned that you lived in a variety of different uh, emerging countries. Are there anything, I mean, or is there anything that you've noticed in the U.S., uh, you know, a developed country that you think lacks that you've seen in developing countries but doesn't exist in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think the the biggest element is that, you know, in a lot of these so-called emerging markets, um, processes don't exist or not the same processes and infrastructure don't exist. So you kind of have to literally find a way. So. For example, in the in the U.S. U.K., you know, you know, three different routes to get to work in the morning, and you kind of just go and you take the tube and you go this way and you you get off at this station, you walk three blocks and you're there. For a lot of the emerging markets, you need maybe a hundred different ways because you don't know what's going to work, what's not going to work. So you kind of improvise, so that the ability to improvise, which is actually core to a lot of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurship, um, I think is is lacking 
And it's not, it's just because of the environment, everything, you go to the UK and 90% of the basic stuff works, right? You know that, you know, if you have to get to work in the morning, if the tube doesn't work, the bus works. If the bus doesn't work, you, you get in a, uh, you know, a taxi. There are ways that are just kind of worked and you take those things for granted. Those things don't exist. And, and what I found also in a lot of the emerging markets is that technology tends to, tends to leapfrog. So you tend to jump. Case in point, I was in rural India where they didn't have, they didn't have clean water, they didn't have cars, um, but they had, they had cell phones, right? Because cell phones, you don't have the ability to, to lay down fiber optic cable for telephones, but you have the ability to put up a tower and use a cell phone, right? And they were using those self, same cell phones to kind of um, stream cricket onto their, onto their flat screen TVs in their little shack, right? So, you know, f- people find ways to make things work. And I think, you know, being exposed to that and, be, and being able to, to adapt and be nimble and to, you know, that's, that's going to be the new normal for sure, right? I think people ask me, how is the world going to change? Well, I think the world has changed in the sense that there's a high degree of uncertainty and people need to deal with that. The uncertainty is the, is the new norm. And so in terms of the, the new normal, I mean, you guys obviously had to scale super quickly um, because demand was really high. But is, you know, how do you forecast demand you know, in the next year or two? And, and, and I would say we ha- we're lucky in that regards that we went from you know, 10, to, you know, 10, million, 10 million a year to 10 million a month. And in our original business plan, we were supposed to have this sort of capacity in four to five years anyway. So it's not like we have built extra capacity and then you know three years from now all of a sudden we have this idle capacity. Um, that there are some companies who have who have scaled who are already large, already big organizations and have added extra capacity for COVID, you know, and then they might have a problem in a few years if that capacity is is excessive. Um, for us, you know, we've you know we start we were small and we're still small, but we've we've managed to scale that capacity. Rather, I see that we're going to continue to grow and the, the need is going to continue to evolve o- over time. Unfortunately, I don't see COVID disappearing either, right? It's going to almost like the seasonal flu. It's going to be with us. Um, people are, what's going to happen is people are going to stop dying from COVID, but COVID is not going to disappear, right? Um, there's still going to, we're still going to have to deal with it, we're, whether it be through purely through vaccines or whether it be through vaccines and other prophylactic measures such as masks. Um, all of that is going to continue to, to be part of our life. So do you think going forward, we're going to be living in a sort of permanent state of partial on and off lockdowns or how do no, you see the situation I, of the coronavirus getting out of the way? I, I think, you know, similar to how we, you know, if you look at Asia, Asia, Asia today is operating, you know, they were, they were dealing with SARS for a number of years, right? Um, some parts of the Middle East as well. And, you know, they've managed through different vaccinations, through wearing masks, through using different prophylactics. They haven't, you didn't see rolling lockdowns. I think the reason why we have lockdowns today is purely because we, we don't have enough people vaccinated. Once you get enough people vaccinated, then the spread of the virus disappears. It's not like you're going to kill the virus. But what you do is you basically create enough people who are immune to the virus that the virus doesn't continue to evolve. And the virus will not continue to, to spread from one person to the next, right? It's important to remember that even with the, the vaccine, the virus will, will continue to spread, but it'll, be, it'll hit you more like a cold, right? It won't hit you like you can't breathe and you have to go into the hospital and then 
you know, you have you have an overworked hospital system uh, or healthcare system, which is what the case that we have today in most of the countries. So, you know, we spoke about how, you know, it, it'd been, you know, scaling and some of the challenges that came with it. Um, but I mean, something we haven't really touched on yet is competition. Uh, and, you know, what are your thoughts on on, on the on the competition today? Um, and, 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 you know, how do you sort of beat it longer term? And I think so for there, the, the simple question is we don't have competition. We have alternatives. Right. So um, our, our technology is highly patented. Uh, we got about what, I think, 320 patents, more than 9000 patent use claims. So highly protected. Now, there are alternatives. So someone can use a regular glass vial. Right. Um, so the way we beat the competition will be the amount of data that we generate to prove that our vial is either better, safer, um, more suitable for certain drugs. We don't say that our product is perfect for every drug. Absolutely not. I mean, it's been, our, our containers have been built purposely for the newer biotech technology. So whether it be bioengineered vaccines, cell and gene therapies, uh, monoclonal antibodies, antibody drug conjugates. So these so-called biologic drugs cancer therapies, immunotherapies, drugs for multiple sclerosis, these kind of these kind of therapeutic areas. That makes up today about 50% of the market. It makes up 75% of the drugs in pharmaceutical development. So we're well positioned for the future. You got to keep in mind that, you know, borosilicate glass or pharmaceutical grade glass hasn't really had any major changes for over 100 years. Right? So you got to ask the question of you know, we've spent all this time on developing on and with research on new pharmaceutical applications, new pharmaceutical formulations, new types of drugs. Why wouldn't you think that those would require a different package? Right. And I think that's 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 where we've been focusing on is that there are so many of these customized drugs. We're giving almost a customized package for those drugs where our drugs are our are vials and syringes are built for those drugs, right? It's not like we're taking an old technology and forcing a new technology into that. We recognize a new technology and we've built a new technology to, to partner with that or to, to, to work with that. Yeah, and I mean, a big trend that we've seen recently, hopefully it's a permanent one, is the increased importance of sustainability and being environmentally friendly. What's SIO2 Materials kind of stance on that? How, how much of an environmentally friendly company are you? So it's, we're very, and it's it's interesting because people immediately think, oh, your plastic and glass is more recyclable. What people forget is that in medical waste, neither are recyclable. So you can't recycle medical glass and you can't recycle medical plastic because they have they have drug or they had drug in that. So it's too dangerous to recycle it, you know, and it ends up in a Coca-Cola bottle or something else. And then there's remnants of the drug. So Typically, they're disposed of in, in medical waste. So if you say that they're, they're both equally not recyclable, then what do you turn to? You turn to the carbon footprint that you're using to produce the product. Glass requires significant amount of, of water and heat energy. You're talking about ovens that are you know, 2,000 degrees, constantly going, massive ovens that are, that are operating. So they're using substantial amount of a carbon footprint. For our containers, we don't use, we use almost no water. It's a completely dry process. We don't need heat energy, right? So it's very little heat. You know, sometimes we have a blast of maybe 200 degrees Celsius, you know, for a second to be able to help to melt the plastic resin. And then we, we stretch it and blow mold it. So we're not using a lot of heat energy. So our carbon footprint is easily 100 to 200 times 
um, lower than than any glass uh, any glass factory. So we've been focusing on that, and uh, and we're doing some running some studies to help substantiate those kind of claims. Uh, but we're we're much better in terms of a carbon footprint than glass. Interesting. And so you mentioned earlier, so yeah, you folks got a, a grant from the U.S. government, um, yeah, to help fuel the expansion. And so I imagine you you built yeah you mentioned as well the the five the five factories that you built. Are do you have any plans to also build them overseas or like yeah. focus yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the initial footprint w was in Auburn, Alabama, and the expectations are we have plans of building, you know, we were supposed to build our second site uh, in Switzerland outside of some of our big customers uh, outside of Basel. And then when the U.S. government grant came, we ended up, you know, building a larger footprint in Auburn, Alabama in the United States. Um, the plans are in the next couple of years is, yes, to kind of replicate some of that footprint uh, in Europe. And We've spoken about the challenges of scaling during coronavirus. Perhaps you could touch on what you forecast might be the challenges of scaling globally to having factories in other countries. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that there's going to be so much challenges in terms of that later. I think what's what's happened is we have a pretty, pretty standard footprint. We're going to need to hire a good talent, but we're probably going to also have to export talent to be able to supervise some of those development there's a lot of proprietary technology that we use to to build our our automated equipment and to build our automated manufacturing lines. Um, we've been in discussions with a lot of the different governments, whether it be those in South America, Asia, and and in Europe, and every, all of them are extremely interested in working with us to kind of bring the technology footprint into you know almost more of a domestic regional kind of scope. Um, so from from um, as scalability, we don't necessarily see that as so much of a problem. You know, we are hoping and, and assuming that the pandemic will be better controlled when we start to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be more about the typical things of getting the right talent, um, finding the right locations. Luckily, we have a lot of our customers who are willing to support us in that effort. Um, you know, even in, in in Switzerland, Novartis has said, hey, you know, let's work with SIO2. We can we have a, a small place in one of our sites that we can actually help help you build out. Um, so they have almost like a biopark model. Uh, and we've been in discussions with them of putting, you know, a small footprint of ours in, in Switzerland to support not only them, but other other customers who might be in Europe. And then we've been approached by a number of uh, customers uh, in, in Asia who wanted to kind of help us expand overseas there too. So I think it's just a matter of time and strategically for us to think about when, when we do that. Interesting. And are, are there any particular emerging countries where you think SIO2 you know, would be a good fit for? I mean, given your experience. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because the supply chain in the emerging markets is also rather challenging in the sense that, you know, you don't have always smooth roads and our containers don't break, right? You can literally drive over a tank and and uh, and they don't break. I mean, they're, they're, it's a plastic core polymer. So if anything, they might bend, but they still preserve the integrity of the, of the container. So in a lot of the emerging markets, it's well suited to be able to be, you know, put in cases and boxes in the back of a truck. The government was looking at that as well. The U.S. government was saying, hey, you know, for our military guys who have auto injectors, we'd like them to have auto injectors that don't break, you know, shatterproof medicine in their pockets kind of thing. So it, it, it would apply very easily into areas of Africa, into, you know, Southeast Asia, um, you know, parts of South America, Latin America. So, I mean, I think it, it could be well suited to a lot of those markets. Great. 
just cautious of your time. So I think, you know, we could wrap up with the signature question that we ask all of our guests on this show. And that is, if you could change any one thing in the world in the next 10 years, what would it be and why? Mindset, right? I think mindset is really what drives all the problems that the world faces today. And I'm highly oversimplifying everything from racial attacks to religious wars to, um, you know, it's all about mindset and territory. I mean, the whole world is about football. Right, it's who controls what part of the pitch, and uh, and then you want to make sure that everyone wants the ball. So, do you pass the ball, or do you have all ten people, fifteen people, twelve people, depending on the sport, who are chasing after the ball in swarms of bees? Right. So, I think for me, the biggest the biggest element that roadblock facing technology, politics, uh, economy, environment is all about mindset. Right, and. A lot of the world still lives in a mindset from 100 years ago and are not considering where things go. And, and you see, this is why a lot of you know, so-called millennials or Gen X or Gen Z are, are getting frustrated because you, you're, you're born and raised with a different mindset. And then there's, I see this with the talent, you asked that earlier, that there's a clash of mindsets even when you hire. You take a manager who might be 45, 50 years old, trying to manage, you know, a 23-year-old kid who, who just graduated from school and they still think the guy's going the kid's going to want to work, you know, 12 hours a day for a salary so they can buy a house and buy a car and have two kids and a dog. Right? Ownership is not so much important anymore, right? You have Uber, you have you have Airbnb, you you know, you don't need those kind of things. You want to be able your your life is less about product and more about experience. Right? And I think Having a mindset shift for the world to better understand that, I think will 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 change a significant amount of things. So I would definitely focus on if I could change one thing in ten years, it would be about mindset. Awesome, Lawrence. That's a brilliant way to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking My pleasure. with you. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Lawrence. Take care. Cheers.